out over here. Okay, I'm gonna start over. Pop, 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 pop. Can you guys hear my super clacky keyboard? Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly satisfying. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast, episode 270. I am Clay Morgan. I'm J.R. Foresteros. I'm Kathy Kong. <laughs> I'm Matt Michelotis. <laughs> uh, on this week's show, we're going to be tackling voter suppression. What it is, where it came from, and uh, of course, what we can or maybe should do about it. But first, uh, I have a very important Feral Hogs update. Yes! Uh, Speaking uh, of Feral Hogs, we voted back. For. Yes. Uh, in some ways, Clay, feral hogs never left us. They've been in our hearts all along. Oh. what? So what's but, happening now? Well, apparently, according to super pig experts, hmm. which I don't, I don't know how you get this title, but U.S. <laughs> and Texas, I like that they put those two things separately as a Texan, um, have, quote unquote, out of control populations of super pigs. Super pigs. Super pigs. What's happening? Feral hogs. Well, so what's happening is feral, like wild boars, are breeding with uh, pigs, like farm domesticated pigs, pigs. domesticated <gasps> pigs, and they're creating these super pigs that have the pot, the best qualities of both. Uh, and so, what they're getting from the domesticated pigs are giant litters and rapid breeding. So, domesticated pigs have been bred to make a lot of pigs really quickly, <laughs> so we can have bacon. And so now these wild boar are, which are highly aggressive, very dangerous, are uh, breeding like rabbits, as it were. And it's creating these like massive populations of feral hogs that are uh, creating what the article that I read calls ham havoc. Dope. Mm. Are, are hogs and pigs, is this like toads and frogs, like they're different or are they just different words for the same thing? Well, they're obviously they're obviously the same species because they can breed together and produce viable offspring. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, fair, like wild boar, right? Are a like they're not domesticated, right? So yeah, mm. but they can breed with domesticated pigs. I can tell we're gonna have to dig into this more deeply in the yeah. future. Boars, pigs, hogs. A hunter in Liberty County, Texas, killed a four hundred and eighty-eight pound feral hog. Oh my goodness! With his so, bare hands. Yeah, it says he's a hunter, so I assume not, but we don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, this actually could be a real problem. I mean, they eat they eat food, they endanger pets and, and wildlife. They actually carry at least 30 different viral and bacterial diseases and 40 parasites, all of which mm. are transmittable to humans and pets. Delicious. Oh, my gosh. Look. Yeah, so. I want to say that I feel like this should be a concern of mine. Is Why? It? But I just feel like this topic bores me. Oh. <laughs> <Hey> <laughs> that was for you, Kathy. Over there. Uh, that was for Kathy. Thanks. <laughs> well, all of this to say, uh, we will, of course, keep you uh, abreast of the feral hog situation. And if you happen to run into any feral hogs, stay safe. And remember, your friends at the Fascinating Podcast warned you first. That's right. Also, don't forget to vote because who we put in office is going to change who deals with the feral hogs problem. That's very pig of you to say, Matt. Oh, gosh, stop. <laughs> <laughs>
Matt with the segues, Clay with the puns. I know. Uh, so yeah, we we told you in our last episode that we're going to spend this season sort of dreaming about uh, how we can create a better world together. And so we thought since we're coming up to an election, we would begin with voting. Uh, what voting, you know, sort of the state of voting currently in our country, who gets to vote, who's prevented from voting, why. And so we're going to do this in two parts. We're going to talk today about the history of voter suppression, kind of get a, a, a feel of the landscape, so to speak. And then next week, we're going to talk about what voter suppression looks like today. And most importantly, how we can be engaged in building something better. So, Clay, since you're our resident historian, uh, I was curious if you could take us back to the concept of voting as we find it in the Constitution. And, you know, who who in the beginnings of the history of the United States, who was allowed to vote? Everybody. There's always been equality as espoused in the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah. Canadians. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So uh, probably a lot of our listeners have heard of people who appear on money these days, and they created the U.S. Constitution. And there was a lot of debate as the United States was formed about who would lead it and how those leaders would be chosen. And so coming off of centuries of the divine right of King's theory, you know, where God basically would just tell you who the next leader should be by giving the current monarch, a son, and the bloodline was clearly God's voice. Um, it was pretty progressive at the time to say uh, leaders would be selected in any kind of democratic way. But I think a lot of people fail to realize um, just how limited the reality was back in the late 18th century, even if it was a big change at the time. And there was a lot of conversation about like the meritocracy. So, you know, you had the a lot of folks like the John Adams of the world who said that you should basically pick the people who are the most exceptional. So the <laughs> leaders, the smartest people, right? And um Right. And then there were questions about well, how much should the leader get paid? And there was a lot of pushback. Like, we should definitely not pay people because then you'll get people who want to be political leaders and they're only in it for the money. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? Hmm. Um, and so even in those first like 10, 12 years, you know, before and after the death of George Washington, the, the thing was beginning to evolve, but yeah, JR, it was, it wasn't women. It wasn't people who weren't white. And, uh, honestly you had to own property. You had to have some kind of valid social standing in order for your <laughs> voice to be, heard. And it might surprise people uh, in just a quick little recap to know that um, it took about 30 or 40 years, really. But um, when you look at the $20 bill and Andrew Jackson, you know, the original Trumper, when you think about how he got elected, um, you know, he was the first president that really just kind of um, spit all over the existing traditions until that point. And he recognized the value as new people were moving into what would become new states, the frontiersmen, you know, the Kentucky people, the Tennessee people, that if he could get them to be able to vote, he could win over the popular voice, the common man vote, right? So it wasn't until that period, that antebellum period, like 1830s, where people without property could vote as long as they were male and white. <laughs> wow. Wow. 
that's pretty crazy. So we've we've come pretty far since that day. Probably not where we need to be, right? Uh, certainly not where we need to be. But there's been a pretty big shift from the beginning, where we were a few hundred years ago, a couple hundred years ago. Yeah, it's really crazy. You know that it's what literally this month is like the 100th anniversary of white women getting the right to vote. And why do you say white women, Clay? Was it a different? Was it different for women of color? Well, aren't we all the same <laughs> under God's eye? Yeah, Kathy, yeah. you're allowed to vote, right? I am okay, now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know it's Thought it's so were. it's so cringy, but a lot. I mean, this literally still is spoken about. But there was a theory that like you only needed one vote per household because the man obviously spoke for the household. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's true in my house. <laughs> and um, clearly in my house. Right. No <laughs> question. So, yeah, so, so different populations in the United States were given the ability to vote at different times. Uh, and we still have, I, I assume people know this, we still have populations of adult Americans uh, who are not able to vote, like uh, people who have been in jail for certain types of crimes can't vote, right? Correct. If ever. Like they're right. voting is gone. Even after you've served your sentence and you're out. The idea being, I guess we don't yeah. want criminals influencing the political system. Is that the idea? That's the stated idea. The right. true and idea being <laughs> if you prevent anybody who's been convicted of a crime from voting and you disproportionately uh, arrest and jail people of color over a period of generations, you will effectively limit the non-white voice in American politics. Oh, so but that's, that's not what they really mean to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where we come with the idea of voter suppression, right? Okay. okay. Is the idea that instead of politicians looking for one person, one vote, they're saying, how do I eliminate not just some votes, but people who won't vote for me, right? Yeah. Like how, how do I limit, either limit their votes or limit the efficacy of their votes? And, and JR's got some, some good uh, comments to come on this. And I see a couple notes just to answer your question from a minute ago, Matt. You know, I, why only white women, right? So just in case anybody is unfamiliar... Yes, there were amendments passed after the Civil War. The Civil War Amendments 13, 14, 15 ran the gamut from abolishing slavery, uh, according to the Constitution, through giving uh, black men the franchise. Um, and of course, what happened instead was this period we often hear referred to as the Jim Crow era, where um, in violation, basically the state's rights groups continued to say that the federal government could not control the way we ran our state's elections. And so you would come up with a series of restrictive practices in violation of the Constitution that were used to disproportionately suppress the vote. So there's a long history of this. Yeah, and and it as as you point out, Clay, it started it started in the Reconstruction era, right after the Civil War, mm -hmm. when the Fifteenth Amendment specifically is the one that said anyone of any race can vote. You can't can't be prohibited from voting because of your race, and so uh, it was it started in Mississippi. Actually, the Mississippi Plan is like the uh, the the the. the 
first and also sort of the template or the prototype for all of these southern states uh legislative actions to bar people from voting and the mississippi plan did a ton of stuff that we don't have time to cover but some of the things that it introduced were basically that question right how can we without making this law explicitly about race how can we keep some people from voting and i want to read a quote actually this is from a uh, Virginia sen- senator named Carter Glass, and it was when he was championing a bill in Virginia that was modeled off of the Mississippi plan. And someone said, is it your intention to keep black people from voting by fraud and by discrimination? And he said, no, 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 not like not fraud at all, but yes, discrimination. And then here's the quote. He said he wanted to discriminate to the very extremity permissible under the federal constitution with a view to the elimination of every black voter who can be gotten rid of legally Mm -hmm. without materially impacting the numerical strength of the white electorate. Right. So so I think that's what's important to understand about the voter suppression is like these things are not illegal. Like they are being done within the context of the law. And in fact, new laws are being created and enacted in order to make this possible. So, for instance, uh, in the Mississippi plan, there are both poll taxes and literacy tests. Uh, So a literacy test might be, oh, hey, you know, don't you think everyone who's voting should be able to read the ballot? Right. Seems like seems like a common sense sort of a thing. But then what they might do is if Kathy and Clay both come in to vote, they might say, uh, hey, Clay, um, we're going to do a little literacy quiz here. Can you read this you know, sentence from a third grade or like, can you write your name? OK, yeah, I can write my name. And then for Kathy, they might say like, hey, here's a dense piece of constitutional law. Can you read the whole thing? And, you know, if you don't have a ton of education, which, again, this might surprise everyone, but southern states didn't invest in black schooling. So most black people in the south, especially in the wake of, em- of emancipation, were not very literate. Right. Then all of a sudden you had mostly black people were not able to vote or a poll tax after emancipation. A lot of black people in the South were forced to be sharecroppers, which meant they lived on credit from their landowners or from the from the landowners, the the land that they worked on. So they didn't have any cash to go pay even a very modest poll tax with. And the poll tax was said, hey, cost money to put on these elections. We're just going to have a very small tax that people pay so that we can fund the elections. Right. On the surface, it sounded really reasonable. They would have tests, like tests about the Constitution. Again, it would be the same thing. We want an informed electorate. So a white person comes in and they'll say, hey, how many states are there in the union? Well, that's a pretty easy question, right? Then they might have a black person come in and they might say, explain the difference between Article 5, Section 3 and Article 5, Section 4 of the Mississippi Constitution. Of course, they don't give you a Constitution to look at, right? You're just expected, quote unquote, expected to know. But all of this was done so that the the election judges at the local level had the ability to deny basically at will anyone the vote that they wanted. And then of course they would allow white people to vote and disallow black people to vote. So yeah. these were like very strategic laws that were passed. And these are the formal practices to speak nothing of just think about the location of polling places, what it would take in this era to get from your cabin from your home to where the voting would happen, the potential miles of a trek would be required. And then what um, what obstacles and traps may be laid along the way, which uh, of which there are many documented instances where people were threatened, uh, attacked, and and murdered. 
I mean, this is all terrible, obviously, but it's like a hundred years ago. Right. I mean, what does that have to do with now? Right. I mean, seriously, is this something that is... Unfortunately, we can't even talk about now yet because we have to stop in the civil rights era. Okay. Well, that's that's Uh, still not... That's that's not a (laughs) hundred years ago. So what, 1960s? No. The 1960s, that's right. Starting in the 50s, I mean, think about it. 1954 is uh, Brown, ver- or 1956, I think, is Brown versus Topeka Board of Education, which is where they started integrating schools, right? So this is, uh, and then leading up in- into the 60s is when we got a bunch of the landmark civil rights legislation passed. Uh, the most important of which for our cur- current conversation is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And the big thing that the Voting Rights Act did was it mandated that any state changes to the way the states ran the elections had to be approved by the federal government. And so this really put a throttle on a lot of voter suppression tactics because it was no longer that the state legislature could basically make changes willy nilly um, because, again, this is what would happen, right? Again, once these voter suppression tactics are implemented, you have a significantly lower number of black people voting, which means that the people who are getting into the office are the people who are benefiting from the voter suppression tactics, and then they pass those laws, and they go into effect immediately. Well, any black person or any group of black people who wants to fight these laws has to go through the lengthy and expensive legal process of appeal, taking it to court, getting it shot down, appealing it, getting it shot down, and almost in every case, taking this all the way to the Supreme Court before any action was done. So whereas it was relatively easy for state lawmakers to pass those laws, it was really, really difficult for uh, people in those states to get those laws challenged and, and let alone to be overturned. And so the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did a number of things to combat these kind of voter suppression tactics. Uh, But one of the biggest things was it said states can no longer just make these changes arbitrarily or willy-nilly or whatever. They have to receive federal approval. And, And again, there's a reason that a lot of civil rights legislators point at the Voting Rights Act of 1965 as like the most important piece of voting legislation that's ever happened in the United States. More important uh, in many ways even than the 15th Amendment uh, or the 19th Amendment, which granted women's suffrage. Uh, so the problem is <laughs> in <laughs> what, Kathy? <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. Closer uh, the, to 2020. Bring right. it closer so, to home. <laughs> so in 2013, there was a massive Supreme Court case, uh, Shelby County versus Holder, uh, where the Supreme Court essentially overturned the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in the key point where they said um, that states no longer needed to receive federal approval. Uh, and and literally the reasoning that was given by the majority justices was we fixed we fixed racism so we don't need this anymore like yes this was good in 1965 but now it's just getting in the way we have a black president uh, was that the argument I mean not explicitly but yeah more or less right um, and, and so th- to nearly no one's surprise. Uh, 2013 and uh, to today has marked a huge resurgence in voter suppression tactics that has made a huge impact on tons of elections, including the last presidential election. So, so how now, now you can still show up and someone's going to give you a test. Like, do you know the constitution? Like, what are we talking about? Yeah. So, um, well, Clay, uh, even before we started recording, you brought up gerrymandering. So maybe before we even get into some su- specific voter suppression tactics, do you want to walk us through like Jerry, what gerrymandering looks like? 
yeah, it's just a practice of drawing um, congressional districts. So it goes back to uh, Elbridge Jerry was an early uh, guy in that founding era from Massachusetts. Wait, it's named after a person? I didn't know. Oh, that. I didn't know that. Oh, I yeah. It was like salamanders, oh. but like Jerry. Well, I didn't it, know what? it was. It, well, I it was. was. So he took the creative tact of drawing such a unique shape on a map of basically creating a pocket of voters. So gerrymandering creates a specific geographical boundary. And the one that he created back in the day, when you drew it on a map, it looked like a lizard or something. The salamanders, they called it the gerrymander. So the practice is still called gerrymander. Oh, it does come from salamander. Okay, good. I'm not too far off. It's a portmanteau. Also, Jerry, you suck. (laughs) Well, you know, you could do it in, in either direction. So you can do it to group a population of a certain kind of voter. And, you know, we could use it in the context of race or we could say, um, you know, affluence, you know, people who are likely to vote for one party or another and so on. And you could put them all into one area knowing that one of their votes is going to be the same as all of them. So kind of if if they're going to win by 70 percent, let's make them win by 95 percent. Right. And and hopefully, um give the surrounding voting areas a chance for another voice to win. Um, Or you can take a population and draw a line so that you break up their collective voting power, right? So if you draw a line right through a community, or uh, this is a real simple example, but essentially what you can do in that case then is dilute uh, a a group's voting power, right? So um, the lines are redrawn based on the census. This has been a practice that's long happened. It's It's been problematic forever and, and will continue. I mean, it's just as fundamental of a problem in American politics to me as, you know, money in elections. So that's that's the idea of gerrymandering, Jr. And it's, it, it goes directly towards uh, this question of how to limit one's uh, voting power, right? That one vote yep. can be can have its impact also and that's legal right oh yeah that's that's literally how uh congressional districts are designed i mean this is why your gubernatorial elections matter because the the governors uh, after census and the and the state legislatures have a lot of impact here right so um now, I've been out of the classroom for a few years, so I don't know if there's been any new developments. I'm not up on recent research like I've been, you, but historically, that's it. Again, what happens is the voting districts get redrawn after every census, and then it has – like if it if you want to challenge it, you have to take it to court, and that's a long, lengthy process. And it almost always ends up taking longer than an election cycle. Imagine so, that. I know. Well, so yeah. So okay, fine. They gerrymandered. You caught them. You win. You get it fixed. But there have been two or three elections in in that time where those gerrymandered districts have have created uh, candidates who are now in in offices and roles. Right. So I mean, yeah. it, in some ways, it becomes kind of a win win scenario for the people who are gerrymandering because they get the people in they want, and then they have that incumbency benefit. Right. Um, Just Google crazy gerrymandering. You wouldn't believe salamanders were like the the gender, basic. Yeah. There are <laughs> there are drawings that they are they so defy any sensible uh, because almost the only almost the only criterion is that all pieces of the district have to touch. 
Oh, so it can That's like, it. It, could, it could narrow down to one street and then widen out to a whole neighborhood. Yeah, like, yes. like think of like a yes. butterfly, right? Two big wings and then it touches in the middle. Fine. Yeah, Kathy, that, that example that he just mentioned is one of the most famous examples uh, in Chicago where oh, yes. each side of the district is on one side of the uh, uh, expressway and there's like yep. this little tiny string that barely yep. connects over by Berkeley or something like that. It's nuts. It's like right by the airport. This is this is what happens in plain sight of our city. So yeah, it's definitely a practice. And that's um, not necessarily thought of as voter suppression, right? I think traditionally we think of voter suppression as this group of people are stopped from voting because of X. And right. in this situation with gerrymandering, and even let's talk about the electoral college, right? Is that how the votes actually tally up and favor one over the other. So, you know, the last election was won by the electoral college, not by the popular vote. Yeah. So, right. And that's the thing, right? Like, let's say, uh, I, I have no idea how many electorates uh, Texas has. It's a lot because we're big, right? But let's say Texas was, you know, uh, let be real generous, 70-30 Republican-Democrat, which I think the last election was even closer than that. Um, and let's say we have 100 electors. Uh, well, we don't get 70 red and 30 blue. It's 100 red, right? So in that sense, right, What what's happening is – 30% of the Texas population or the Texas voting population, which is a sizable number of U.S. citizens, are essentially erased from the election results. Do you mean how many electoral votes, JR, does Texas have? Yeah. It's 38. 38. Okay, well, I just did numbers that made math easier, so. <laughs> Jerry, you know, one I mean, and two, that makes, it, that makes yeah. it easy, one and two. Right, and, and even, you know, backing up a little bit on the Voting Rights Act is um, required, uh, what are the words? What are the big words I'm looking for? Um, protections, protections and accommodations for voters with um, limited English. Mm. So the understanding that you don't actually have to be fluent in English, which is not our national language. We don't have a national language that just because you have limited English does not mean you cannot be an informed voter and care about what is happening in the country which you have citizenship in. So it, it, it added protections to have translators and ballots printed in multiple languages, which, you know, that's a whole nother side to understanding yeah. voter suppression. Semi-regular announcement from your friends at the Fascinating Podcast, English is not the official language of the United States. I know. Gasp. It's American. It's American. It's like English, but dumber. <laughs> Just okay. side, re relevant sidebar. If you're up for the intensity of the boys season two, um, uh, the main character Homelander very much is representation of those who would say that American is the native language. Oh gosh. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's talk about some uh, – in the time we have left, let's talk about some specific incarnations of voter suppression that are going on today, and that will set us up next time to talk about uh, how we really begin to make a difference. Uh, so I'll talk about a couple that are um, that are massive in Texas especially. Uh, it also might be a fun fact for you to know that Texas is sort of like the poster kid for <laughs> uh, voter suppression. Good these job, days. Texas. So, super what? proud of that. Uh, <sighs> Yeah, and when I did my when I when my friends and I did our voting rights um, 
trivia night a few weeks ago, we had some folks from a couple of nonpartisan voting organizations and we were talking about voter suppression and they were like, you know, like in Texas. And then they were all kind of like, ha ha ha. ha." Um, Why doesn't Texas care about democracy? Oh gosh, Matt, that's a whole other thing, right? What, what a lot of, what a lot of people in power in Texas care about is continuing to have their job in their way. So what? Yeah. Ironically, um, Texas was the home of Lyndon Johnson, who was the president yeah. during 1965 Voting Rights Act. That's right. Hmm. Uh, okay, so there's a couple things that since 2013, Texas has been doing, uh, I'll say effectively, because I wouldn't want to say really well because I despise voter suppression. So the first one is closing polling stations. Um, again, there are all kinds of reasonable seeming reasons to close polling stations. But uh, in Texas, we actually lead the nation. We have by ourselves closed almost half of the voting stations, polling stations that have been closed since 2013. So how does that, how does that suppress the vote, though, JR? You can still vote, okay. right? Right. Well, it's just yes. more efficient. So, again, there's all kinds of reasonable sounding, right? Uh, since 2013, Texas has closed over 750 polling stations, and over 500 of them have been in counties that are majority non-white. So what that means is, for instance, in the Houston primary elections back in March, a primary election, right? Not even a main election. There were lines that were where people waited for over six hours to vote. What? Okay. Yes. So So, the idea is there's some people that won't, aren't willing to, aren't able to wait in line for six hours to vote. Right. Let's say, let's say you're a single mom. And you uh, get off work at four o'clock. You've got to go pick your kids up from school or daycare or whatever. Get home, make them dinner, blah, 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 blah. You run by a voting place and you see a line out the door and around the block. You can't. You can't go vote. Okay, so I understand that it's targeting people of color by closing mostly in those neighborhoods, but how, how do you keep it from having splashback on the, uh, whatever other popular, like how do you, what if it's a Republican, uh, white mom and you're a Republican closing down voting stations? Why, how, how do you prevent it from affecting other populations also? Well, again, that's why, that's why it's significant that the vast majority, like 500 of the 750 that's a lot. Which is fully two thirds yeah. are in majority non-white counties. Yeah. Right. So what's happening there? Is, and again, like when I went to vote in that same primary, I waited until election day. I didn't vote early. Shame on me. But I stood in line for an hour. Now I have a job where I work from home. I have a tremendous amount of privilege in my ability to do that. Um, it didn't matter if my lunch break went long. So I sat there for uh, an hour. And literally when I was about to get in the door to go vote, Someone came in and said, hey, across the street, there is another polling station and there's no wait there. (laughs) So like half of the line got out and went and voted over there. And I was like, well, I'm already here, whatever. But again, we had two polling stations right next to each other and uh, there wasn't any wait at one. And that's the longest I have ever, ever in my life waited in line to vote. Usually Voting in the places I've like lived, it sucks in, in Texas. Like next week when we talk <laughs> well, about how we vote, I hate to tell you, but Washington is delightful. Okay. Um, well, let me tell you about voter ID laws in Texas. Yeah, tell me about that. <laughs> okay, so again, it seems reasonable, right? You want to pr- you want to make sure that people aren't lying about who they are, so they, they you bring an ID to vote. 
there's actually I, this. I shared this in my sermon this past Sunday. There was a man uh, who in Beaumont, Texas, who is a retired Army veteran who uh, for the last 50 years has voted uh, with his Veterans Association ID card, his VA card, right? His VA ID card. Uh, he went down to vote in the 2012 election in Beaumont, Texas, and he was not allowed to because he didn't have one of the seven voter IDs that were approved by the Texas Senate Bill 14. And that's, uh, a, now, that's a new bill? Uh, new as of 2011. Okay. It had, it's already off the books because it was struck down by multiple federal judges oh. as violating the 15th Amendment. Oh. Uh, because it restricted the IDs that were allowed were IDs that uh, tend to be owned by white people, like gun owner ID or gun license. What? You could use your gun license, but not your VA? Yeah, because I believe the VA card was not a photo ID. Oh. Um, but again, like nearly, like the majority of states do not require a photo ID to vote. Correct. Um, so again, this seems like for to, to most people, this seems like a reasonable law. But when you look at how it is implemented and who it affects, it it unjustly impacts minorities. Now, the other thing with photo IDs, the reason this happens in the South is, again, particularly in majority non-white counties, they will massively restrict the hours that the DMV is open. So there is a county, I believe, in Alabama where the DMV is open for one day a month oh, good from like from like nine to one. <laughs> what? So to so try it. and keep you from getting an ID. Correct. And so you can either drive to another county. Uh, there, there are actually counties in Texas where you have to make a 250-mile round trip to get to the nearest DMV. Whoa. And so, again, these laws, uh, these laws have actually been struck down by federal courts uh, as a contemporary poll tax because you have to pay so much literally just to drive there and back. Um, that, that it's, it can be prohibitive, let alone the fact that you have to take off work. A lot of the people, again, who live in these counties are hourly workers who are going to have to take vacation time. You know, if it's it's only open Monday through Friday, and so if they if they have a typical Monday through Friday job, they can't go on the weekend because it's not open on the weekend. And so, again, the state passes what seems to be like a fairly harmless, low-impact law, but then they change all of these other rules around it so that it is just – it's more difficult for non-white people as a rule than it is for white people as a rule. Hmm. Wow. So those are ID laws. Those are closing polling stations. Another big one that's made the news in the last several years is voter roll purges. And this is where states will go through and take people that they think are either dead or fraudulent out of their voter rolls. Of course, what ends up happening is they they overwhelmingly purge non-white people because they have non-white sounding names or just because they want to. So uh, Brian Kemp, who's the governor in Georgia, who quote unquote defeated Stacey Abrams in the gubernatorial election in 2018, was the uh, secretary of state for the state of Georgia before he ran for governor and purged over a million names from the ballot that were legal voters. This was in the news this morning, actually. Did you see this? Oh, really? No. No, no. Yeah, because they uh, they just revealed that when Kemp did the roll purge, that uh, they didn't compare the addresses against anything related to the U.S. Post Office address list. Oh, goodness. Uh, and oh. so that means it was illegal. Like, obviously oh. illegal. 
So I don't know what. That's okay, so here's mean. a great example, right? Yeah. Let's, but let's say, let's say, right? Okay, fine. It was illegal. They go back and reinstate all those people's voting rights, but that election already happened. Right. Kemp already won, and now he's given a bunch of people in Georgia COVID because of the way he's led during the COVID crisis. And so it COVID's doesn't like not real. In some ways, it doesn't <laughs> matter funny. whether whether <laughs> Brian Kemp even gets impeached and removed as governor. Like, okay, good. He should have never had it in the first place, but like. That that how long was tw- how twenty eighteen was seven hundred and fifty million years ago at this point it feels like, and the damage is already so much damage has already been done. So and this is so that's your point right? So it was like what three years ago that he did the purge and like today we're finding well, out yeah this was illegal right. right and it's still not even gone to trial or anything right, right. there's been no charges right. filed it's not like he's getting impeached tomorrow right. um, and those voters don't get their vote back that's right. It doesn't matter. That election is said and done. The impact has already been put into place. So so what? Then you you run the numbers again? And how do you give Stacey Abrams two years in the governor's office? You can't. You can't undo that. Mm. I mean, unless time travel. I think what's so distressing about this is that what the way it should work, right, is that a politician who wants your vote should create policies and actions that cause you to want to vote for them instead of saying, I'm going to make it so you can't vote. So I have power and do what I want. So it's really distressing, actually. It's, it's not just an inversion of voting. It's an inversion of democratic principles. Uh, the whole point is supposed to be that they are doing what we want them to do. That's right. I, again, that's that's very much where I think this issue matters. And honestly, I'll say for me, where I came to a passion for voting rights was when I first really started trying to educate myself about contemporary race issues. The thing I kept coming back to over and over and over was like, I don't want to try to be a white savior. I don't want to say like, hey, people of color, I came here to fix all your problems, blah, 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 blah. Um, So I, I looked at like, well, where do I have privilege and where can I use that? And I said, well, you know what? Again, people of color are more than capable of advocating for themselves. They know what policies they need they know what what things they need to live a healthy flourishing life they don't need me to tell them that or figure that out for them what they need is the voice to execute that and where it's being where it's being silenced is at the ballot box by all of these things and so as someone whose vote is never going to be suppressed in this country you know straight white cis male christian evangelical pastor um what can i do to like leverage my influence here to make sure that exactly what you said, Matt, right? It's one person, one vote. Uh, and then again, if, if, if people vote for things that I don't like, well, that's what a living in a democracy is, right? Um, JR, am I remembering this right? I feel like when I first met you that you didn't vote at all. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, why was that? And, and was this what, that's what changed it was thinking about race issues. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I didn't vote out of a conviction that voting is participation in the American empire and voting is leveraging power over other people. And as a follower of Jesus, we're called to not be a part of that. Uh, and I still believe those things. Um, but where I came around on it was saying, you know what, like voting is a, 
voting is a voting should be a right that every citizen has. Uh, the reality in our country is voting is a privilege that only some have. Correct. And as long as that's true, and I'm one of those people, I have an obligation to vote on behalf of my neighbor. So even, you know, uh, our friend Juliana Baggett uh, back in 2016 did a whole a whole blog where she invited people to talk about why they're not voting for Trump. And so I, my piece that I wrote for that was like, I'm not voting for Trump because I'm voting for all of the people that Trump's presidency will be bad for. Um, Trump's I have not I have not because of my own um, position or culture, I've not been afraid or damaged in any way by Trump's presidency. Um, I'm again, straight white Christian male. So, uh, I realize that again, if I'm, if I'm truly going to vote on behalf of my neighbors, that's what, that's what has to happen. So for me, it was this tra this switch from, uh, not voting as a, as a protest to then actually voting as a protest. <laughs> well, and I became a U.S. citizen in part for similar reasons. I mean, I, really? came, I came as an eight-month-old baby and had a green card, which actually was vaguely green. And, <laughs> um, and <laughs> about 10 years ago, um, you know, I'd really wrestled with whether or not I wanted to become a U.S. citizen and realized that was one of the privileges I could take advantage of because I had the papers. I could write an $800 check to start the process with no guarantee of citizenship. So that's the other thing that if we only think of voter suppression as what is happening at the ballot physically, then it becomes very abstract. But you can back it up even to... Um, you know, doing it the right way, becoming a U.S. citizen for me, I had all of the papers, I had a green card, social security card, I had the money, I could take several days off of work, I had transportation to get myself to get my fingerprints taken, to get my photograph taken, to go take the test and prove that I had some level of fluency. All of those things took time and money that I could take advantage of and have the privilege of doing and also know at the end of the day, I may not be granted citizenship, right? So wow. it, even though I had lived my entire life here in the Midwest, I speak English better than I can speak Korean, that there was still no guarantee because by eight months, you know, mom had me in Seoul, South Korea versus in Chicago, that birthright citizenship and all that it affords people also ties into whether or not you have access to a vote. So mm. I did the same thing. I, I, I wrestled with whether or not I wanted to be a U.S. citizen, what it meant to have that passport, all of that. And then I realized, you know, I know a lot of people who cannot just walk in, <laughs> fill out that paperwork, write off a check, and go, okay, well, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and... When you don't exercise your right to vote, your privilege to vote, as you well put it, you're creating a increased leverage for those who do. Mm -hmm. You know, in a sense, there's an overlay that uh, is available to those who participate in that in that gap. And just a couple things to kind of round out this section. I was talking to someone recently and. And, uh, you know, I think she very authentically, without malice of thought, said, um, oh, my kids, uh, they're, they've closed the school for election day. I don't know why the kids would need 
election day off or students in high school or whatever, grade school. And uh, my friend and I said, well, you know, the teachers who work there, the, the, the staff, they need to vote. And I said, this is why there's a big push to have election day as a federal holiday. So that the one thing that should not hold you back from voting is the fact that you have to go earn a living and provide <laughs> food and housing for your family. And, and she, she just none of that had occurred to her that it that that was even a thing. Right. And that's part of what privilege does for us is mm-hmm. I don't have to think about the challenges on Election Day that for some people, they literally may have to decide between their job and, and voting, right. for example. And just finally, with that leverage, when you think about the people that do vote, then you start to question what motivates them. Mm-hmm. And the kind of things they believe when they go in. And the one or two issues they believe perhaps because of their faith that are the only thing that matter. And that their view on that is that they have to vote a certain way because, you know, basic misunderstanding of civics or because they are, you know, manipulated by various media, whatever it is, um, all of that does more work in exacerbating the problem because of what people do with their privilege to vote and what they think they have to do with it. And they make what they think are informed decisions, but are often pretty short-sighted choices. And really, if we cared, right, as a country, that we really cared about everyone's right and privilege to vote, it would be a national holiday and we would all get a paid day off of work. Yeah. For those of us who have, you know, full-time jobs, which is not me. <laughs> but <laughs> it would be a it would be a day off so that you could go and vote without having to worry about making sure you get it in between your lunch hour or childcare right. or all of those right. things. Yeah. But we don't. Yeah. A lot of people talk well, about the culture wars and I don't think they connect election day to the culture wars as much. But the same people who push those same buttons, yeah, get the right well, kind of people talk- to vote for them. Sorry, Jer. Yeah, no, I was say we're going to talk a lot more next week about what we can do going forward, including things like voting day as a national holiday. Yes. But uh, we're running out of time for this week, so I want to hear, uh, Kathy, what is fascinating you this week? Oh, what is fascinating me? So I finally read a book this month. Hey. hey. You know, it's been really hard during COVID to like actually read words on a piece of paper. Um, but the book uh, was translated um, into English from Korean. It's called Kim Jiyoung born 1982 by Cho Namju. And it is a novel, uh, but based on kind of current events, the Me Too movement and misogyny. And it's about this uh, contemporary Korean woman in Korea and her kind of mental deterioration as she is living under misogyny. And I'm still a little shaken by it because I have always been told, one, my parents came to the U.S. so that I, as a girl, woman, could have a better life. And then in the whole deconstruction of faith and the reconstruction of faith, really trying to wrestle with this whole idea of the American dream, right? And uh, the idea of colonization and did my immigrant parents buy into white supremacy and this 
fake dream, the American dream. And the reality is my reality here as an Asian American woman, Korean American woman is actually better here than it would have been in South Korea. And that's part of the broader global conversation that we don't have time for, but great book. So highly recommend. Awesome. Nice. Sounds great. Yeah. Matt, how about you? Yeah, there's a book I love that I chose because it's on topic for today. It's called Citizen Vince. It's by a guy named Jess Walter. And the basic idea is there's a man who's a criminal who uh, goes into witness protection because he rats out the mob. Uh, So because he's in witness protection, he gets his right to vote back. And uh, what happens in the book is, of course, the mafia finds out where he is and they're coming to get him. And it turns out, I can't remember, but I think the cops are after him, too. Like he does something not completely above board. And he is so like he's been so excited about receiving this right back that he is determined to vote before either of them catch him. He's like, I might die, but I'm going to vote. And it's, it's just a great book. It's, it would be just a fine crime novel on its own, but I think the way it mixes in the voting thing really gives it some resonance. Uh, so that's Citizen Vince by Jess Walter. I love that book, Matt. You sent it to me last year, I think. And yeah, it's terrific. Cool. Oh, man. Great book. What, what do you, what do you got, to, Clay? JR? Clay? Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll go. Um, so I think I mentioned, I think I mentioned in our last episode that I've been starting to run some D and D campaigns and I found this amazing (laughs) website called ink carnate, uh, that lets me make virtual maps That's and it's, it's possible I've gone off the deep end. (laughs) Um, what does that mean? Like I, I sat around almost, so my wife is doing an internship right now, which means that she is not home a lot. Mm -hmm. I have a lot more like solo time than before. Mm -hmm. And so I spent almost all of Friday and Saturday um, uh, that I was awake making maps for D&D campaigns (laughs) that may not happen for like a year. Oh, jeez. <laughs> but I was like, I have this map ready to go. It's so fun, um, Just because, honestly, it was fun. It was enjoyable. And mm-hmm. I was, I was, uh, you know, I've I've made, like, battle maps. I've made a, a continent map, like, all kinds of different. Matt, you've seen a couple of them. I have, yeah. Yeah. They're great. They're really fun. And they definitely let you know kind of where everything is. There's a lot of clarity. So do you just find it, like, you just start to unwind and relax, like, just building this this world? Yeah, and it's fun because um, anyone who's read any of my fiction knows I'm not great at, like, scene setting. I'm much better at, like, the character stuff. And so I find, like, actually building the physical space and, like, figuring out what color, like, is it going to be grass or stone and what textures and what kind of, like, where do the trees go and all that. Like, it helps me actually think about how the story is going to be told as well. So it's I just find it to be a very creative and narrative process. Wow. So That's cool. Super cool. I've been watching a bunch of different things, but I'm going to do a throwback here because for years when this show was on and after, people told me to watch Six Feet Under um, on HBO. So it just so happened that I decided to start it finally. I've been thinking about it through the summer. And um, I see why people told me specifically about this show for such a long time as the writer of a book called Undead and the guy who worked in a cemetery for four years and all these things. Um, but I find it, are there undertakers or something in that show? Yeah. It's what's his face. who became Dexter 
and uh, Richard Jenkins, who I just always enjoy, and and a couple other people. Um, but yeah, it's right. It's a family-owned funeral parlor, and uh, they take you into that world. And so it's kind of episodic, right? Each episode, there's a uh, person who dies at the beginning of the episode, and then it, it leads to this the story through the eyes of the family, right? But then also the larger issue perhaps raised by the particular um, person and their mourners. So I just find it interesting. It's very philosophical. I was actually really moved during uh, one of the season one episodes on the on the relationship between the two brothers. And uh, yeah, just very, uh, just very interesting. It's so Gen X. It must have been like the last major Gen X show because <laughs> I'm like looking yeah. at the dates and I'm like, it's like 2001, 2003. They were doing The Wire at the same time. How is this so Gen X-y? Um, but it was like HBO <laughs> wanted to do a my so-called life of their own or something in, at times. Oh, yes. Anyway, this six feet under on HBO is fascinating me. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, that's our show for today. Uh, before we go, I know Kathy already had to, to duck out to take a call. So, um, uh, Clay, what are you working on right now? And I think you didn't you put out a book over the break or was it right before we went? Mm, break? I don't remember. The, the only book I put out <laughs> that you might be referring to is the presentation power ups, um, which is uh, a whole lot of ways to prepare for practice and perform uh, in front of people in any capacity. I've been I've been converting all of the stuff I do for the day job. We've been converting everything to virtual. So just a ton of day job work and teaching and, and things that aren't really out there for the public. But if you if you want to know what I'm working on and see in that capacity what I do for, for the day job and contact me as a lot of people are to continue to do virtual workshops, just, just go to LinkedIn and connect with me at Clay Morgan PA. Sweet. What about you, Matt? Uh, You're writing like seven books right now? <laughs> I, I'm writing several. Yes, I'm in the middle of quite a few projects right now. It's I'm quite busy. Um, I would say right now, if you want to see something fresh, the Tor.com C.S. Lewis articles continue to come out. So this last week had one about uh, C.S. Lewis and racism, uh, particularly uh, the idea of ethnocentrism in The Horse and His Boy. And this next week, so right around the time this episode will come out, there'll be another one, which will either be uh, competing visions of Aslan from non-Aslan uh, worshipping sources, which is interesting, uh, the demon lion, or uh, it'll be about uh, the shifting views of gender roles for C.S. Lewis between the lion, the witch in the wardrobe and the horse and his boy. So those are on tour.com. Awesome. And Jared, what are you? I know I know a big project you have coming out soon. What what are you up to? Yeah, so I was invited I was invited to contribute to a collection of essays uh, of evangelicals engaging evangelicalism in the wake of Trump. Hmm. And that is coming out. They they really rushed this. My manuscript was due uh, September 1st, and the book is coming out October 1st uh, because they wanted it out before the election. Um, but it's called Keeping the Faith, Reflections on Politics and Christianity in the Era of Trump and Beyond. Uh, uh, Matt, uh, your friend Rasul has an, an essay in there, I know. Yep. Andy Crouch has an essay in there. Uh, uh, David French has an essay in there. Uh, Brandy Miller, they're like the, the number of people, of people who, yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Like I looked at the contributor list and I was like, 
I don't know why they want my essay, but I'm going to happily <laughs> contribute it. So, um, and, and actually the, the essay that I mentioned that I did for Juliana back in 2016, I ended up going back to that and re-engaging it four years later. Uh, it was kind of how I did it. So, nice. um, yeah, really, really proud to be a part of this book. I think it's an important conversation, particularly as we're heading to the election and so many, even it looks like evangelicals, if anything, are doubling down on, on their, our support for Trump. So, um, yeah, I, I hope this book will be will will make a difference. Will make some people think and engage. So, um, yeah, I, that's 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 coming out quick. You can pre-order it on Amazon now, at least on Kindle. I think they're going to have a hard hard copy. I'm looking forward to it. So, all right, folks, this has been episode 270. Next week, we are going to tackle the contemporary reality of voter suppression. Uh, what you can do to make sure that everyone has a voice, and and again, specifically, I think how we engage that as folks of faith. So, thanks for tuning in. We'd love to hear what you think, what you're into this week, and what you're looking forward to as we approach November. So, grace and peace be with you all. Take care of yourself. Watch out for feral hogs.